Try it again. And we're going in three, two, one, take 12. And it's a protege, eh? Yeah. Chronics are where you say, eh? Kaboom! <laughs> Welcome, everybody, back again for another episode. This is episode, what number is this? 17. 17. Uh, we're making progress. And so to continue on our growth as a show, we actually have a guest um, for the first time in a long time. Um, a guest who Dominic and I were lucky enough to meet many years ago at a wedding for somebody else who's on the show, Drew Palmer. And it was his Episode six. <laughs> seven. <laughs> okay. Seven. And, uh, and, and we met uh, uh, Dr. Monique Bidaisy at that time, and uh, we honestly have not spoken since much. <laughs> not going to lie to you. And then her and I spoke a couple weeks ago in regards to the podcast because she listened to Dominic's episode um, and found it uh, interesting, uh, both comedic and sad, but, and all of that in between. But so I'll give you a quick little background on who and why Dr. Bidaisy is with us, is on with us. And then I'll have her chime in. Um, I'm reading directly off her bio. So she's currently um, an associate professor of history and African um, and Africa. Sorry, one more time. Associate professor of history and of African and African-American studies. I don't know what that means, but we'll find out soon. At she, well, Washington University of St. Louis. Correct. And PhD from University of Miami. Go Canes. And uh, according to her bio there, by the way, so I'm reading off directly, all right? So, professor, professor, first of all, did you write this? Did you write your own bio? Um, I don't think I wrote that one. Is that from my um, web page at work? Yes. Okay. Because I don't think I wrote that one. It says, Professor Bedezi is a historian of Africa and the African diaspora with a focus on East Africa and the Caribbean. Based on a deep interest in transnational histories, her work moves be betwixt. Betwixt is one of the amazing, greatest words. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> this word was just lovely. <laughs> betwixt and between. Both. Betwixt and between. Mm. So they're not, they're not synonyms. They're apparently two different things. Um, betwixt and between regions that have traditionally been, been calcified into separate fields of study. Her interests include the intellectual, political, and social history of decolonization, black internationalism, and African diaspora politics. Hot damn. I don't she, even know how those things are. She's also a renowned author. Yes, that's correct. Having penned the monograph, which I had to look up the meaning of. My Jack Kingdom, Rastafarians, Tanzania, and Pan-Africanism in the Age of Decolonization. So yeah, so she's done a whole bunch more than Dominic and I ever have or will do, right? I mean, completely. Right? That's so much stuff she's going on. It's crazy. So welcome, and thank you for the time. Thank you so much for having me. You're both crazy. I'm happy to be here. It's good to see you virtually, <laughs> but to see you nonetheless. Oh, mate. Well, no, on the real, it's been, it's, it's, we had a chat a couple weeks ago. So literally, as I mentioned, we had not really spoken since the, since the wedding. Um, she's been very nice to actually listen to our podcast and our foolishness and heard <laughs> Dominic's episode and actually reached out regarding that episode uh, because it was, uh, as I mentioned, troubling slash uh, comedic, uh, not for the situation, but the way we kind of discussed it. And, uh, um, you know, and it led to us having a conversation about all of this and a lot of her background. And so I wanted to kind of start there is 
what is your background? I.e., like your last name, Badezi. Where does that come from? Let's start there. What is the etymology? <laughs> okay, so the last name is supposed to be Indian. I was born and raised in Jamaica, and I have both African and Indian ancestors on both sides. So the name is Indian. Um, what else do you want to know? Well, how does one... And, and I'll touch on this as we progress into this, but how does one get into becoming the professor of decolonization, black internationalism, and African diaspora politics? Like, what, why, how? How does somebody go from Jamaica to this field of study? Yeah, so I, okay, so I was raised in a Rastafarian family. So my parents were members of the 12 tribes of Israel, which is one Rasta group in Jamaica. Um, founded in Jamaica in 1968, but the wider movement was founded in the 1930s. Um, so when I left Jamaica after high school, at about 18, I think I did high school, stayed for a couple of years, and then left, moved to Miami, and then started college, um, and gravitated toward any and everything about Black people globally. And at that point, it didn't dawn on me consciously that my upbringing um, had much to do with that. Um, I actually had, I was not, you know, doing history at that point. My first degree was English and I had minors in anthropology and religious studies. Um, and looking back, the religious studies minor was a way for me to think through what it meant to be raised, um, Rastafarian, um, trying to figure out what religion meant to me and then, you know, figuring out what the politics of Rastafari as a movement, um, also meant to me and how it shaped me. Then I finished a degree in English, did a master's in Africana studies at Cornell. Um, and at the end of the master's degree, which is also about, you know, black people globally through different disciplines, I wanted to do only history for the PhD and decided to do African history. Um, and then it sort of went from there that I ended up doing uh, my first book, which was my dissertation, ended up, you know, doing both Africa and African diaspora. Um, and ended up being a whole different story, which we can get into later, but it was not the book I planned to write. I actually went to the field in Tanzania for research and um, changed the station topic because of what I unexpectedly found while I was in East Africa for the first time. Yeah, that was back in 05, right? Yeah. Yeah, see? Eh? A little research. <laughs> I was about to say, look at you. Yeah, unbeknownst to you, you saw the, the Rasta influences there, correct? Hold on, where are you following that, Dominic? <laughs> <laughs> right? So might, I, because my question, my question was going, was going to be, if you grew up knowing this, because I was ignorant. I always thought in Jamaica, we think Rastafari, we think Ethiopia. Like Tanzania, right. no clue about this. Um, you know, and... Learn, I learned all about this in the last few days, in essence. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Julius, if I'm slaughtering his last name, Nirire, I kind Nirire. of Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, just, you know, the land grants they provided to us. But I'm sure you can espouse upon that. But I learned that you were enlightened um, when you were there and seeing the influences that um, the Rastafarian people and movement had in that country yeah. at the time. Right. And it yeah. paved the way and changed what you were planned to do and write. Yeah. Yeah. So you're absolutely right in that, you know, the fact that I 
write about repatriation to Tanzania, not Ethiopia, surprises many people. Um, because most Rastafarians, you know, who think about repatriation, think about Ethiopia. Um, and that, of course, comes from the fact that Haile Selassie, the daughter of Rastafarians, um, you know, actually, obviously, um, you know, was, you know, crowned King of Kings, Lord of Lords, conquering line of the tribe of, tribe of Judah in Ethiopia. Um, and he issued a land grant to Rastafarians um, in the 1950s. And that has always been, you know, considered the home of Rastafarian people. Um, but by the time we get to the period I work in, which is the period of decolonization after, you know, the rise of black nation states after independence from colonial rule, um, beginning in the late 1950s with the Sudan in 1956 and Ghana in 1957, that many black people across the African diaspora start to think of other parts of the African world or other parts of Africa as possible places to which they could, you know, either just move or return if you thought about yourself as as African, right, and not really of the diaspora. And that was really enhanced by the fact that leaders like Kwame Nkrumah and Julius Nyerere um, started to welcome, you know, were Pan-Africanists in their outlook and started to welcome, um, you know, diasporic Africans to, you know, help to sort of build post-colonial African nation states. Um, so I went to Tanzania as a PhD student for the first time in 2005. And the plan was to learn the language and to, you know, start to work with preliminary research on what I thought was going to be a project on a dissertation on how Tanzania became a mecca for, you know, freedom fighters of the liberation movements of Southern Africa. But when I got there, Dominic, I noticed like signs of Rastafari everywhere, like on the buses, in the artwork, um, red, gold, and green all over, images of Bob Marley all over. And I started to talk to people about it. The first person I spoke to was in a market, um, a man who identified as a Rasta man, Tanzanian Rasta man, selling all kinds of um, red, gold, and green items, artwork, um, clothing, all sorts of things. And what I learned is that they were very eager to declare Rastafari as a serious philosophy. People wanted to talk to me and they wanted me to know that they were not just smoking weed or listening <laughs> to Bob Marley, <laughs> um, that they were serious Rasta, Rasta by faith. And I was really intrigued by this desire to actually reconnect with uh, what they refer to as a traditional Africa through Rastafari, a sort of diasporic invention, right? Um, and it went from there. Eventually, a Rasta woman told me there was a Jamaican Rasta man there. If I wanted to learn about Rastafari in Tanzania, that I needed to talk to him. And I, you know, looked for him, got his number, tracked him down, went to his house. Um, and that is where my sort of personal biography, having been raised in a Rastafarian household, really came into play because he trusted me immediately, actually knew my stepfather. Um, and then maybe a week later, came to see me where I was staying and brought a box of primary documents, a historian's dream, right? Um, and that is when I started to figure out that there was a history of Jamaican Rastafarians who repatriated to Tanzania. And I knew in that moment that I had to, to change my project and write about this instead. It's wild. 
It, it, I mean, <laughs> it is wild. It, it is. And, you know, what, what, did, what did you learn about, you know, with that repatriation movement? Because at the time you mentioned decolonization. I'm sorry, were... did you say repatriation again? Yeah. Bridget, it's not how you say well, how, how, how do you say no, it, doctor? She's, she's educated and, 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 and her dialect is different. You, you've been saying patriot and everything forever, and now it's patriot? Never said. Bridget, no. oh, you said patriot. I've never said patriot. What That's my say? point. She doesn't say patriot. I don't know, do you? Oh, she's a patriot. <laughs> I thought he said repatriate. Yeah, yeah he's fine. Just, so, leave him alone. Exactly. Certainly. So, but during that time, you mentioned decolonization. But at that time, um, the fifties and sixties, there were certain African nations that were still in the heart of colonization. Correct. That had not Absolutely. gained their independence. So, that must right. have created a unique atmosphere, not just worldwide, but on the continent as well. Because right. you mentioned um, Tanzania, you know, with their independence and wanting to embrace Pan-Africanism, but you still have distinct borders and, and non-black powers that it, I can't imagine the struggles in creating this utopia um, right. then and still now. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a really important point um, because so Pan-Africanism, of course, um, you know, had been alive and well before independence. And one of the arguments I'm making in the book is that it continues to thrive after independence. And one of the one of the main reasons or important context for this is that even though, you know, about 17 African nations gained independence in 1960, and then of course, Caribbean people begin to gain independence from colonial rule during the same period, is that there are many places that remain under the new colonial rule and so you have, you know, Southern Africa, you know, you have, you know, Southern Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, um, Namibia, you have the Portuguese colonies, Guinea-Bissau, um, that don't gain independence. In the case of the Portuguese colonies, until the mid 70s, then you have Zimbabwe in 1980. Um, and then you have other parts of Southern Africa moving all the way to the 1990s, right? Um, and so these leaders, Pan-Africanists, um, and others, including Rastafarians, are really not only thinking about but engaged in activism around or through, you know, Pan-Africanism, where they're saying, okay, some of us have gained independence, but we care about those who have not. Um, and in some places, the struggle makes this transition to armed struggle. And so I was interested in those, you know, liberation movements, you know, free limo, the PAIGC, the ANC, um, the PAC, you know, people who decide to turn to armed struggles to try to fight the Portuguese or try to fight South Africa in order to gain independence. And Tanzania becomes a rare base for that type of activism. Um, so the repatriation is happening within the context of all of that, um, where Africans are really engaged in an anti-colonial struggle in a time that was supposed to be a post-colonial time, while also dealing with the realities of, you know, the way in which, you know, America rises, you know, the, the, and becomes this sort of bastion of capitalism, and through the IMF and the World Bank, sort of trying to, you know, curtail the real, real independence and sovereignty for newly independent Black nations. And so it's a really complex period, right? And so this story that seems like a, 
kind of small micro history of a, a group that was really marginalized in Jamaica, a group of people, Rastafarian people who have this dream, you know, who declare themselves to be African and not Jamaican, who have this, what appears to be this elusive dream of being accepted as returning Africans. And they get an African state and an African leader to actually validate that. Um, and say, yes, you're Africans and use the language of return as opposed to migration. And then give them not only residency, but the option for citizenship and then land. Um, so it is this amazing story of what this group accomplishes, group of people, what they accomplish. But it's also tied to larger, much more complicated, um, histories of what's happening in the world. Um, you know, during this shift from, you know, colony to, you know, a post-colonial world. Yo. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm listening. No, because I'm like, <laughs> no, because it's, it's, it starts obviously with religion as the base, but then it kind of moves over into a nationalism aspect, I guess, which is much of what reading for your bio, that those things are, are interlinked. Um, and as a non-religious person myself, that's why I'm, I'm, you see, you see things like this, I mean, throughout the Middle East, you see things like this in general, where religion is the driving force behind nationalism in many scenarios. Like, they're, they're kind of interchangeable. And then you also see that happening here in the U.S. now um, as it relates to Southern white Christians and a huge nationalistic push there as far as, you know, America, our first, et cetera. It's just weird how, I guess, religion is the backbone for a lot of these things across across the board, I guess, with finding either... Um, what should I call it? Uh, a comfort in a like-minded group, or finding a home in that situation before you find a home in a country slash actual home. Like I guess religion is your first comfort zone before people make many of these decision steps or even open their mind, which is weird for me as somebody who's not religious, I guess. But I think I think with this, it's, it's <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Like with this scenario, I think it yeah. it, it kind of goes deeper than nationalism though, because it's it's a marginalized group, meaning. Rastas in Jamaica, historically marginalized group mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is desirous of a return to the homeland, but also closing to the embodiment of God in essence, Ja, and just whether it's Tanzania, whether it's Ethiopia, it's it's Africa. So as opposed right. to nationalism, I don't know what the term would be if you threw out continentalism or just <laughs> home is something of that extent. But you mentioned America. You mentioned from their vantage point, seeing you know America grow on the capitalistic side. Um, Want to get your thoughts on? Are you familiar with the ADOS movement, American Descendants of Slavery, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and which are the Black Americans that right. aren't necessarily about that Pan Africanism life or or movement, where they they see a distinction between their history and the rest of the African diaspora. Um, right. And in fact, there is some conflict amongst them in terms of black immigrants into the US and what they perceive as the black immigrants having certain advantages that they don't have. Um, and I actually espouse, and I want to get your thoughts on this, that in my opinion, uh, <laughs> With the black, with the African diaspora worldwide, the Black American experience is 
unlike any other. And in my opinion, the to put it lightly, to put it lightly, the most difficult of any of the diaspora, the American experience hmm. itself historically for the 402 years that they've been here. Was there a question? Yeah, okay, so <laughs> it's kind of a long <laughs> thing. Yeah. No, I guess it. I mean, I guess the question. <laughs> All right, so I want to. Okay, so but I feel like you just asked me a million. I, I did. You know, I tend to. Um, ra- I tend to. Ramble. I know. I know. I, tend to I know. Yeah. But this is good. All right, yeah. so this is the thing. I want to come back to I mean, thing about religion, but let's deal with the the um the question you just asked me or the comment you just made, um, Dominique. So I yeah. So I think. It depends on when you say Black Americans or when you say they, it depends on which period you're talking about and who exactly, right? We're talking about Black Americans, we're talking about a whole community of people, um, and we can't flatten that community as though it's, you know, there's no nuance, right? So I would say um, we have a long history of Pan Africanism, meaning people who have thought about Black people in transnational terms. Um, and we have, you know, that history includes people of African descent in the U.S., in the Caribbean, in Africa. Um, and so I don't want you to lose sight of, I don't want you to flatten Black Americans by thinking all Black American people reject um, the idea, you know, that Black people globally are connected. Oh, no, I, right? th- I actually think it's a smaller um, segment. Yeah, specifically with okay, this okay. movement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so I, so I think some of it is in the same way you're going to have some, you know, African-Americans who are going to um, not embrace or not think of themselves in terms of other people of African descent. In the same way that we have people in Jamaica and other places who refuse to even think about race within the context of or Caribbean nations, right? Yeah, you know, you left Jamaica and came to the college in in the U.S. at University of Miami in particular, and we know that Black people from the Caribbean it takes them a couple of years usually to even realize that they're Black or, or of African descent. <laughs> yeah. And usually, I, yes, and usually, happened to me, right? Yeah. Yes, and usually work hard to kind of create a distance between themselves and African Americans because. Of this, I mean, I would say ignorance, right? Yeah. I think that coming, I think that there's some differences. When you say, um, majority, when you say the Black American experience is unlike any other, I think what we're talking about are the sorts of differences within the African diaspora. So we think of people within the American context, Black people being the minority, right? As opposed to, you know, black people coming from Caribbean nations where they are the majority um, and often don't think about the history of slavery in the same way. Um, and I think there are, you know, real sort of historic realities that make for these misunderstandings and make for these um, really kind of ignorant assumptions that we, we often 100%. Within. Yeah. Um, and so... I think that's, you know, that's also, obviously we have all the different ways that people have, you know, varied experiences based on gender, class, sexuality, all of this. Um, And so I think 
you know, most people, there's a time, when you think of the scholarship, I think there's a time, let's just say more recently in the Black Power period, where many people, or even before that, going back to Darby, we have this long history of people, let's just say in Jamaica, thinking about those connections among Black people, that there are many people who don't know that we had slavery in the Caribbean. I mean, on a very basic level, right? You, you, you really um, come across so, people like that? Hold up, seriously? Yes. Yes, I had a, a professor, um, when I had my first job, a professor who worked on Europe, who came to my office to ask me if there was slavery in the Dominican Republic. Oh, this um, is a professor? You know, a, slave, a professor. Did he um, think people just decided to travel westward, uh, like, you know, well, darker pigmented individuals? <laughs> that was my question. I wanted to say, you think black people just pop up to the earth? Like, I don't know. <laughs> So I'm saying it's not, when I say ignorance, I'm not just saying people who are not formally schooled. I'm saying that because of the fact that, you know, much of the history that we assume to be important history has been so Eurocentric, um, that scholars who do Black histories globally have had to work hard to, to not only deconstruct stereotypes, but to explain to people, Black people included, right, that many of these assumptions that we make are based on, on widespread ignorance about what happened where um and so we're not trying to say all you know black experiences are the same all black people should think about race racism um life in the same way um but you know there are some real similarities and and because of them pan-africanism as a construct you know as a project as a political project um you know has I mean, there's a long and really rich history, and I and it's not over yet, right? Yeah, it's um. And to clarify, I was more so being from um, the experience being more from a an oppressive standpoint, an American. Standpoint. Oh no, I didn't hear you. Oppressive. On a which oppressive standpoint. Oppressive. Yeah. So yeah. we took through slavery, which you know was widespread, but then the Jim Crow era, um, then even through civil rights, and then you know um prison industrial complex and the war on drugs yes. and, and things that are still in place now, things that are still codified by law now that still, mm -hmm. um, the intent was to be disproportionate and the laws are still disproportionate, disproportionate. The application of the laws too, and just even the policing, you know, vastly disproportionate towards darker pigmented individuals in America. Um, yeah. You know, which is still I do think that's a tremendous, yeah, I do think that's historically that's one of the, you know, the ways that, uh, that the experiences have been different. That when you have, you know, Jim Crow and when you have segregation that's, you know, codified in law, um, I think the fact that certain forms of discrimination were not codified in law in Caribbean states, for example, I think that allows people to say, oh, we're, we're so different from you know, South Africa was so different from the United States um, that race does not apply to us, um, right? Um, and I think I mean, so many people, you know, say we're so much better. African-Americans are so hostile. We're so much better. Instead of thinking about the different ways in which, um, you know, those experiences evolved in places where Black people were either, you know, transplanted across the Atlantic and landed in different parts of the African diaspora and what, what that experience looked like 
based on the particular local circumstances there. Um, I think we tend to, I mean, if I'm real, I think a lot of people don't want to be associated with what's considered to be at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. So we want to say, we're not black American, we can't relate to that, we're from the Caribbean, we're more civilized. Um, it's that class. It's that classist mentality, and it's only it, about class. And it's yes. it's without taking a nuanced approach and understanding the basis, um, why so many of the black populace in America is on a lower socioeconomic state because of the history involved yes. and, and everything there. Exactly, and we don't want to think about capitalism either, right? We don't want to think about how those things are intertwined. Um, we just want to say, Caribbean people for the most part want to say, race doesn't really apply to us. Yet still, if we're honest, think about it. Growing up in Jamaica, um, how many times have you heard, she's pretty for a dark girl, pretty here? Um, all of these things that go somewhere, right? That, you know... I mean, just look at the bleaching, the bleaching epidemic. The bleaching, yes, yes, yes. You want yes. to explain what that is to so people who don't know? Yeah, where right now it's actually it's isn't it? I mean, where in individuals the are literally again. bleaching their skin to have a lighter but, complexion. But didn't it like didn't it have a resurgence of late, like recently? Because it was a thing back in the day, and then I thought it had a resurgence of late in the past couple of years or something like that. If I'm not wrong, I don't even know if I don't even know if it stopped Amit to oh. have a resurgence. I know that yeah, I know it's still still right. Um, and you know, and we have that in parts of Africa too, where people bleach. I mean. <laughs> I've seen documentaries on this, and I, I mean, it's it's, it's difficult, right? Because there's so many people who justify it by saying it's style, right. it's style. It's in a dance hall. It's style the way you would wear Gucci. Um, you just bleach your skin because it's in, um, which to me is foolishness, right? I mean, it's like there's no, there is a real context, a real history that tells people that lighter skin is more attractive, is more beautiful, is more desirable. Um, and yeah, it's, I mean, we have, I mean, and, and people may not be aware of, you know, the realities of, um, life in the fifties where black people couldn't go to hotels in Jamaica in a black country, or even just the reality of Rastafarians, um, you know, what they experienced in terms of state violence upon Rasta people, um, the discrimination, it is anti-black violence in a black country or that black power literature was banned in Jamaica. Um, you know, in the 60s, it's so it's, I mean, it exists on, on many different levels. And I just think, you know, some of it is being a part of a, or from a majority black population where we can fool ourselves into thinking we're free because we've always seen black people in positions of power. Um, but it, you know, we need to think about, you know, think about it in, in, in different terms and, in, in a way that's more sort of informed by the history. Speaking of... No, no, I was going to say, hold up. Am I drawing a very simplistic uh, correlation between um, the the oppression of, of, of Rasta people in Jamaica back in the day um, and mm -hmm. then and then the, the adoption of Rasta culture as it relates to music, tourism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a, hey, there's a place for this. We can... We can profit off this we can use capitalism we, we in essence we can put it in a capitalistic grouping and then similarly here in the u.s the oppression of black people but hold up the music part we like we can use this stuff and make money off of this stuff right like it's it's uh, am i making a very simplistic correlation between the two and find the similarities no there? no no that's that's 
that's no, that's a brilliant point. That's actually, I mean, that's actually one of the main arguments I'm making in the book, right? That people think we don't know a time, right? That people people don't think of Jamaica and 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 automatically think about reggae or think about Bob Marley, right? That people associate Jamaica with Rastafari and reggae and Bob. Um, and I, one of the one of the main reasons I I wrote, you know, the book the way I decided to organize the book is because this annoys me. Like there's a way that um, you know, the government of, and it's not just when I say the government, like, like these sort of radical, these expressions that come out of our tie to black radicalism become sanitized and are appropriated um, by the same institutions, the state, um, elite people who discriminate against the people who produce these things, right? So it becomes, you know, representative of the nation. So we think of Rasta as culture. And because of it, even in the scholarship, people like to really think through um, the impact of Rasta and reggae on the world, right? And so it's a brand. But then there is this real erasure of what Rastafari has contributed to a black radical, not only imagination, but struggle. So it's the same way I like to think of it as akin to the way people think of Nelson Mandela, right? That for many people, Nelson Mandela is like a, a black Santa Claus. <laughs> he died and people loved him. And as a historian, that was really annoying to me because the man was locked up for 26 years. In the 60s, when the ANC made the transition to armed struggle, he was like a terrorist. That's how the world saw him. And there's a way that that history is lost, right? When it, you know, it's sort of um, really sanitized and we shift another period. Um, so I wanted to put Rasta back in, not only focus on how Rasta people themselves have thought about what Rasta means and have been connected to um, black radicalism, but when we focus on how other people have embraced Rastafari culture, we are really not focusing on Rastafari and what it means to Rasta people. But we're focusing on how people from all walks of life have embraced, um, you know, what these people have produced. And that's okay. That's an important history. You know, culture is important, um, but not to the detriment of the real political um, projects, you know, to which this this particular culture was connected. It's interesting you mentioned the, uh, the sanitization of it. It's, I would say it's also similar to uh, MLK. Um, the way yes, people embrace him absolutely. now in the U.S. when he was public enemy number one, you know, absolutely. officially by the government and, and by the populace of a significant portion of the country. And now people say, for example, if there's a police riot and then you'll have people say, well, why can't you guys just do MLK would never do this without really understanding his beliefs and his thoughts. Um, they just think, I have a dream. without understanding the full context of the speech or his beliefs in on the macro level or his notorious right. letter from a Birmingham jail, just reading into that and what he thought. It's just right. picturing right. MLK was Absolutely. just kumbaya, everybody, you know, sing and things will be better. I have a dream. Yeah. Everybody has a dream. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent point. I mean, yeah, it's the same thing that now he belongs to everybody and nobody, nobody reads about the more radical thing or talks about it. 
right? Um, and so it, in a way, it goes mainstream, and and you know we lose sight of the fact that he, um, you know, started to have a really radical, you know, critique of, you know, what capitalism wrought, right? So moving to talk about the poor, for example, um, and so it it's exactly the same thing. That's that's you know when we sanitize the histories of of um of these figures and movements like Rastafari, right? We lose we lose a lot in terms of black history and in terms of the fact Dominique, back to your earlier point, when you when you went through the sort of historiography of African American um of the African American experience is that the struggle continues. Yes. Right? So when people sanitize these histories and make these claims on Martin Luther King and his claims on Mandela and claims on Rastafari. One of the things they're actually trying to do is to say that was then, you know, we embrace this person now because, you know, that's over. Um, you know, and now we're in this harmonious society and we get it because Martin Luther King said so. Um, and lose sight of the fact that the struggle continues. We have to remain studious and the struggle evolves and takes you know, shape in a way that is that represents the particular historical moment we're in, but the struggle continues. I'm not gonna lie to you; you guys are talking about <laughs> stuff that's 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 of interest, but I am well below my educational level to to, to truly add <laughs> value. Um, but what I will say in general is, it's so it's it's interesting as I'm looking as I'm listening to you guys because that's what I've been doing. There is so much that I just mm. don't know. Um, and there's so much that I didn't realize too, because I grew up in Jamaica, I didn't know, I honestly didn't know about the, the, the oppression of Rastafari in general. And I did know that I didn't know much about them. Did you know about the Carl, yeah. Gar you know about the Carl Gardens incident? Negative. We grew up in Mobay and Carl Gardens is an area in Mobay. And, um, Tell him down, Nate, go ahead. It was late fifties, so early sixties. You know, like where the, you know, the gas station. No, I know what car guard is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm with you. So the police, it was, an incident, I think over a couple of days, they wound up um, undocumented amount, but, but killing and torturing numerous Rastas, arresting many, many more, but killing and torturing. It was riots and everything. Oh, so yeah. I literally zero I idea. About I only learned about that about probably this? five years ago. But how did so. you even learn about that? That was I, not in my schooling. No, no, please. That would not be in our schooling. <laughs> that, that was not in my schooling. Talk about whitewash. <laughs> yes. Talk about whitewash. No, but that's what I'm saying. Like, there's so much of this stuff yes. that obviously I didn't. Hold up, but how did you find out about it? You didn't answer the question. I don't remember. It was only about five years ago. I have no idea how. Because these are things that obviously yeah. I, not obviously, but I had no knowledge of in general. Like, there's a whole leap that I have no knowledge of in general. Like, obviously, and we've talked about a lot of things that we've learned um, and have communicated uh, on this podcast. Things like, um, uh, whatchamacallit, Tulsa. Things yeah. like, you know, all the stuff that have been whitewashed yeah. throughout. Uh, and I'm using that phrase, and in some situations, but it is blackwashed. But yeah. yeah, I mean, in Jamaica too. In Jamaica now, well, is that whitewashing? In the 50s, I guess what, it was. Still was British. it was it pre 60? Was it independent? Pre independence or when this? It was after independence. It was after. Which is okay. what made See? that. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah, so but it's so still that colonial see. mentality, right? Which has is been pervasive. Which, I mean, it's still kind of there today, sadly, in terms of. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. back to Amit's point about education, right? Is that you know, think we have a majority black population. But if let's just say I do, I did black studies, a master's in black studies, Africana studies, and then I work on African African diaspora. Um, the study of the African diaspora, which would you know sort of place Jamaica within the context um, of 
a much wider diaspora. That is not a strong area of study, even at the University of the West Indies, right? Um, and so, you know, we, we have to fight to get, you know, black history in our curriculum, even in, in high school in a, in a Caribbean context. And that struggle is ongoing, right? Um, so, you know, in that way, we're similar in terms of decolonizing the curriculum here in the U.S., but also in the Caribbean, where I think people imagine um, that a majority black population um, with black teachers that we would teach about Garvey or that we have mm. been doing that for a really long time. I know that took work to, to, you know, get rid of a really sort of colonial um, curriculum across the island and across the Caribbean more broadly. That that has had to be a deliberate effort, right? No doubt. So what does yeah. Rasta repatriation look like today? Repatriation. 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 What does that look like in 2021? <laughs> this guy. This, this, man. But here's the thing. This is us every single day. It just never ends. We're, we're, I know. We'll be in wheelchairs on the canes and still doing this. <laughs> Like, why your kids said so? I mean, yeah, I mean, it is the language and grammar for yeah, exactly. Like, every word. Yeah. And, yes. I mean, betwixt you and every I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I always tell people I'm a historian, so when you ask me questions about right now and future, I don't know. But, um, I mean, you know, repatriation remains a dream for many Rasta people, right? You know, there's some you know, who think about return as a sort of psychological and intellectual sort of project and are, you know, okay staying in Jamaica or the parts of the diaspora. But I think the, the desire to physically return will will always be there. Um, and I think I've heard many people say, not just Rasta people, but other people of African descent um, who see themselves as you know, or embrace an African identity that since the pandemic and certainly the Trump era that they don't want to stay in Babylon as Rasta people would say much longer and are thinking about repatriation. I, I feel like that desire to repatriate, um, there's been a resurgence, I'm right? Um, yeah. I'm curious, yeah. which I've, I've been reading about the past couple of years, just a, a growing probably small movement towards Ghana um, yeah. in terms of Jamaica and also the U.S. actually. Um, so, yeah, I'm just... Yeah, and Ghana on the Nkuma after independence, um, like Tanzania, you know, Nkuma really welcomed people from the diaspora to go to Ghana. Many people, you know, moved to Ghana, lived in Ghana, um, you know, from scholars like Du Bois and, you know, many people passed through Ghana, um, Caribbean people included. Um, and they recently had their year of return. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there will always be there will always be um, energy around, you know, black people repatriating to to Africa. I don't think that's going anywhere. All right, so hold up. <laughs> we've we've okay, hold so up. now no, because now we're I it's, I know are, we are take done, a lot of are time. Are you done typing aggressively that? Bruh, the next door neighbor can hear you go. It's all right. There's a couple things. I don't know. I'm just beating the laptop. 
You done? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I'm like, hold up, uh, damn it, what's who's the people in the courtroom that did this stuff? Stenographer. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought was one of those. Two, one thing I wanted to mention on the religious front, right? So I, I heard about this on a podcast last week. Yeah. Is we have, and I don't know what it is in Jamaica and other places, but we have, um, and I should know, but I don't. So in, in the U.S., we have this quote unquote freedom, freedom of religion, right? Which is the whole thing where wherever you come from, you can be religiously free and not have any issues, and then. Along with that, we have uh, um, no religion in public schools, right? Of that situation, which which some senators are trying to change right now, which I find very comedic. But either way, and then in so that's kind of thing where you can be free and embrace whichever religion you subscribe to, as long as it falls within the moral guidelines of the Christian religion. I.e., you can't do things like um, uh, what call it, uh, Haiti, uh, so certain voodoo and stuff like that don't qual- don't qualify and classify as an appropriate religion. So there's still guidelines between what religions do work, but technically free from religion. And in Europe, specifically France, actually, they have they have the clause is different, where it's freedom from religion. And the point there was, if you don't impose it on me, I want to impose it on you, and we can all live kumbaya, happy lives together. Which you know, and it's much like in the Middle East, and um. I think Dubai as well, where, you know, if a shirt is offensive to anybody, then you can't wear that shirt, so nobody's offended. It's like the greater good across the board. But with the freedom from religion aspect, you have problems with that because people from certain parts of the world wear certain garb that, because that's part of their general religion across the board, like, uh, you know, if, like if a you're mo- a burqa, exactly, things like that. So how do you, how do you, how are you free, how would I not impose that on you? You know what I'm saying? And so that's causing a, a, a an issue feel because literally like having a cross in your neck, apparently from what I was question. hearing, you could you would put that in your shirt, no harm, no foul, right? So that was saying, it was <laughs> in schools, like that's the way it was. Wait, are you I, saying that's the way it should be interpreted, or no, that's no, no, the that's, hy- hypocrisy? That, like no, I can't wear my cross out in France you, if I had a cross. No, it's not okay. So it's not you can't. It's not walking through the streets. You can't do this. It's a matter of like in educational situations and whatever. So you went to public school, for example, right? Yeah. This is the way I heard in the podcast. Uh, Chris, if you're listening, you can tell me if it's right or wrong. Um, uh, because that's our, my only French associate here. So the the example that was given was if you wore if you wore a cross in school, for example, and somebody else found it offensive, or to make sure that nobody had any issues, it was just saying, hey, just tuck in your shirt. If you had a cross, if you had whatever, if you had the Star of David, just put it in your shirt. No, everybody's good to go, right? That was the thing. This way, I'm not telling you what to believe. I don't care. Vice versa, we're happy. And and then, but then it became a situation where I was like, how do I, how do I put the burqa away? <laughs> like I can't do anything with that. You see what I'm saying? So now it's like, okay, well, then if they can do it, how come I can't do it? And now it's, that whole thing is coming out. So the freedom from religion that was supposed to be create this lovely utopian situation where everybody lives blissfully in ignorance about whoever and whatever you subscribe to, it doesn't really work. And the freedom uh, of religion that we have in the U.S. doesn't work either because there's still one overarching religion that governs this country, which is Christianity. So... There is no technical freedom of from et cetera et cetera of religion that I've yet to see is my point, and I and, and as a non-religious person, I find it very comical. I and think, that was yeah. a statement. Well, I, <laughs> 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 that was longer than one of my five questions into one question. <laughs> I was like, this is a lecture. I'm going you're welcome. No, I've no, educated no, you guys no, on what's going on in Paris. I'm Paris. I mean France overall. Sorry, Doctor um, Jaguani. Yeah, like this, right? Exactly. I know. I'm like Doctor Jaguani. I'm taking notes over here. You are welcome. I mean, you can put that in your next book. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, like, <laughs> Did you know I'm about like, this? 
I, until I, I just I told you right now? No, no, you told me about it last uh, week. Up, up until yes. then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not. Sorry. Continue, doctor. But I mean, I mean, yeah, I think you're, I think you're guessing at the relationship between religion and politics, right? And Always. the reason I know, <laughs> that's yeah, a yes. Yeah, and the reason I am a historian and love history is because there's, you know, the context explains much of this for me, right? So I think the if we're thinking about Rasta or in your case thinking about, you know, Islam in France, right? Um, that religions that are connected to what has been perceived as anti establishment phenomena. So like Rasta is was when it emerged anti-colonial, anti-establishment. And so the politics of it is not just that people were saying, we are worshiping a black god, right? It was also a critique of a white Jesus, a critique of a sort of British king or queen, um, very fiercely anti-colonial. And so that was not just seditious in a colonial context, um, but it was, it incited a lot of fear in the colonial authorities because they thought they would use words like they would sort of incite a riot or violence. Um, they could not control a black population, right? When these types of ideas were allowed to flourish. Um, and so I think when I think of France, I think of the context of, um, French colonialism, I think of the presence of, I think of the Algerian war, right? And in many ways, we can look back at the Algerian war for independence from France. Um, and we see Islam as a part of what was considered not French, right? So not, um, not a religion that sort of represented French empire. And so no, it is a very sort of complicated um, process of figuring out can people be black and French? Can you be not Christian and French? Can you be a part of the French nation? Um, and I think those are problems or issues that we grapple with even in, um, within the context of majority black populations or black nations, right? That Jamaican people love Jesus. You all know this. We have <laughs> so many churches per capita. Mo the many most in the world. Per, yeah. In the world and bars. Many of us have still have pictures of, I think they certainly our grandparents' generation, they have a white Jesus and maybe even the queen um, in their homes. Um, and so we have this history of radicalism of people like, you know, of Garvey and Rasta uh, and people who think about, you know, nurturing an African-centered view of the world. At the same time that we've always had this very sort of conservative, pro-colonial, um, you know, love white Jesus, you know, love the queen, um, that's always been represented in the Jamaican context. Um, so I think there's no way to think about um, which religion, um, you know, fall under this great scrutiny without the historical context. And in the same way, I mean, you mentioned um, Voodoo. And even in the Santeria, I don't know if you remember, there was a case in Miami um, when it comes to Santeria and animal sacrifice. Yeah, that, that's they, it, it normally, it's only right, that relation. Right. Yeah. And they act, exactly. Um, and so that, you know, 
anything that is really not considered mainstream, and we know what mainstream is in the American context, um, then they fall under much harsher scrutiny. You know, but that's not separate from race, right? Politics. You know, that that's not separate from the fact that Rasta, you know, comes out of a history of slavery, colonialism. Those are the conditions that created. Um, you know, Vodou comes out of the fact that Africans were forcibly transplanted across the Atlantic to what's now Haiti. Um, you know, and so very much connected to that history that, you know, we can't lose sight of that when we're thinking through what's happening in these places now as it pertains to religion. So we've been speaking for little, almost an hour. Um, and so now what I'm, I'm going to transition it and I'm going to make it a little lighthearted. And essence, ask you a couple questions about you. Oh wait, be before the lightheartedness, because okay. I had a, a man, Dom always want to get deep. How long have you been a professor at WashU? Is it WashU? I've been at WashU. Yeah, get with the lingo, bro. Look at you. That is the lingo. Um, I've been at WashU since 2013. I actually came here on a fellowship, a postdoc, and then they hired me. Um in 2015 and then I got tenure just what two years ago almost two years ago um so it's been oh. I've been here in St. Louis for about seven years almost right. seven, so, years, seven years so with your tenure you can basically you can do anything you want right <laughs> within reason <laughs> <laughs> um no so here's here's where the non-lighthearted aspect so you were there during um Ferguson right and Mike Brown I you, was. You must have just I been, was. Because what? That's clear. I was here. It's Ferguson is like a right. suburb, right? Just or just outside, to right by. Or? So it is. It is wild, right? So Ferguson is in another part of of St. Louis, but it's like by car, it's probably like fifteen or twenty minutes from where the university is. But St. Louis is so segregated that it's even when we have students that come from Ferguson, it's like they're moving to another state, right? So it's like- Oh, they've never really ventured their, over there. Yeah, because the, the university is considered, the area of the university is going to be considered a wealthy suburb in St. Louis. Um, and so that was wild when I just moved here. Like we know Miami, I moved here, I lived in Florida for many years, as you know, and Florida is segregated in its own way, right? But this was, St. Louis has its own thing going on. That's a whole other story. Um, but venturing to Clayton where the university is, um, you know, for many people from places like Ferguson, it's like, it, it's a whole different world. It's a whole different world. Speaking of random question, Miami, did you live in Kendall or Pembroke by chance with every other Jamaican imaginable? <laughs> um, when I just moved there, I lived with my grandparents. And that was in, yeah, Kendall. Okay, like, see. yeah, very close to Kendall. <laughs> so that was South Miami. And then I moved to Fort Lauderdale to live with an aunt. And then I lived close to University of Miami. And then <laughs> I lived in Weston. Um, when I left Florida, South Florida, I was in Weston for, I don't know, maybe 10 years. Yeah, so she followed the Jamaican trend. Yeah. All the, all the Jamaican it, yeah. That's the trend. That is Kendall, it, to Weston, Pembroke, you ended Weston. Weston. Yes. That's the way the game works. I, I never made it to Pembroke. Pine. <laughs> 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 you skipped it. Yeah. Um, 
All right, so obviously we've obviously uh, the audience slash us is and your students obviously as well are aware of your aptitude and uh, and, and and knowledge about this subject we're speaking about and many more. Question: What is something that you are a complete, you know, ignoramus at? Like, what is something you're not good at altogether? Edu uh, you know, like what topic can you not speak on and don't care to speak on because it's just completely outside of your wheelhouse? Oh my God, there's so many. Um, <laughs> um, uh, math. Um, right. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm not good at math. Um, I'm not technologically savvy. You probably figured that out this morning. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> you could tell the audience that he was having many technical no, issues. Who's Do supposed to be the technical this, director? This friggin' this idiot guy, over here. Hold on, hold on. You know what this idiot says? Is? <laughs> we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to set this up on, on team, right? We're trying to use team to set this up, right? We did in FaceTime for those of you who will watch it later on on YouTube. We tried to set this up on team. And the idea being using team was we can then record it, right? So now we're trying to make First this happen. It named, it actually named teams. Is it's not like a it's not, photo it's thing. It's the it opposite throws, Jamaica. Yeah, it's the opposite should fling on us. Right, sorry. Teams. So no teams, right? So no, we were looking to do teams to just so we could record it. This youth calls me, right? And we're trying to set it up and we couldn't make and, and it wouldn't work. We couldn't get it to record, etc. This youth goes, yo, why don't you try calling me and see if it does anything different? <laughs> I'm like, yo, you friggin' idiot, dog. It's not who's calling who. Something just doesn't work. This is the buffoonery from well, this idiot. You couldn't figure it out and no, I'm sorry. Lord have mercy. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. This is the buffoon. Keyword. Now, okay, what is your guilty pleasure on yeah. TV? Like, what is a garbage show that sh that does not speak to your aptitude that you watch and enjoy? Like Dominic likes Lord. every every housewife show is what Dominic loves. Okay, I hate the housewife shows. Uh, I hate them, but I do watch some buffoonery. Let me try to remember what's the most recent buffoonery. Um, a couple of days ago, I watched. Uh, I watched a thing about Indian weddings or weddings in India. <laughs> was that on Netflix? Because I was told I to watch. No, I have I not. Somebody told me to watch it. And I have not watched it. There's one it. on Bravo too about something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, no. Somebody else told me to watch yeah, the Indian wedding. I, learned, I, I learned a lot about. I learned a lot about not only different parts of India, um, but I mean, you know, but yeah, there was a time. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'm not really doing. I'm not really doing the housewife shows, the reality TV so much anymore, but I do watch Foolishness sometimes. Right. No, I just want to make, I just want people to know that, hey, you're not spending all your time in the books and you have some dumb stuff to, to, to change things up. That's all. It makes him feel better. No, people at my aptitude level no, need to make sure that we're, you know, that there's some kind of correlation, there's some kind of communication here versus, you know, you living up here, you know, uh, aptitude wise and me not so much. Hashtag between. No, no. <laughs> After the first book was done and after tenure, I I feel like I watched too much TV. I was binge watching a lot of foolishness. So yeah. And I don't know if you know, this podcast was born of Dominic trying to write. Yes. People. And proof point. <laughs> really? Yes. What were you trying to write? That's by trying to write, meaning he had it in his mind, in his debating, mind. going. And I'm telling him, pen to paper yo, will I'm, soon I'm happen. I'm struggling to write this. I had like a page written. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This dude has a legal pad in front of him with scribbles, yeah. and I'm assuming that's what the book looked like for years. That's kind of what the book looked right? like. Right? Yes. It's it's that kind of vibe. This yeah. So I mean, yeah, we're just not skilled in this yeah. way. That that that's the origin of the podcast. There you go. Um, on that note. Well, the podcast is so 
right. The podcast is good. I'm, I'm proud of both of you. You're doing some really good work. So that's good. Thank you. And thank you for your time yeah. and enlightening us. And thank you for everything. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us and enlighten us on all of this. Uh, you, oh, you mentioned, thank you, for you, having me. you said sure. the first book. Hmm? So if you'd like to mention, forgive me for not knowing there's another book or other books you'd like to mention as well. She's in betwixt books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. So there's a, a second book um, that I'm, I'm, you know, early stages. So I don't need to get into all of that now. Okay. But the one that I'm thinking about more, I'm, I'm working on two. The second one is like I'm in talks with an editor about a memoir. Um, we didn't get into that today, but it would be a memoir that focuses on my journey in terms of being raised, Rasta, um, and taking a lot of it with me, but leaving some of it behind. Um, it, you know, the religion part, which we didn't get to come back to, Amit, sorry, maybe another podcast. All good. We'll make it um, happen. <laughs> there'll be a part, um, definitely like a there'll part, be a part due. Anyway. Sorry, yeah, I don't know why you did that. I don't know why you did that. Yeah. You've been saying that for 20 years. <laughs> there was a movie, and that's where it came from. All right, anyway. Let, let Con, sorry, finish. continue. <laughs> why you got to run? Sorry, have mercy. No, anyway, so it would just really talk about um, why the fact that I do African history has led me to reject some parts of, of Rasta or to question certain things, but also really, really... Um, forced me to realize or recognize the extent, the great extent to which it has shaped me and the great respect I have for it, right? So that's what I'm working on now or thinking about now. All right. So for those of you who check out the first book, obviously, um, and uh, which- Jack Kingdom. There you go. Rastafarians, Tanzania, <laughs> and Pan-Africanism. Available where all books are sold. In the age sold. of decolonization. There you go. <laughs> Available on the Amazons and every other place. Uh, so go check it out and support the cause. Dr. Bidaisy, much appreciated. Thank you for the time. Uh, Wait, why do you say it with like a Z? I don't know why, Bridget. <laughs> Bridget, no, you're going to comment. Or a Z. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to criticize that? You said. You you're going to criticize that? That's it. No, that, that I support. That I support. I know. Yeah. That I support. Yeah. That was very, that was very far in mind. Yeah. 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 Mind you, I actually stopped saying Z. I think I was like six years old. Um, came up to really? yeah. I came up to my parents brought me to America to stay with their friends, and their kids and their friends heard me say Zed and clown and clowned me so bad that it scarred me. And ever since then, no, said, yeah, it was like yeah. childhood trauma. No, I <laughs> yeah, and it just so I you just went back it. to Jamaica and said Z. Z. I was saying Z from uh, six but, or seven but years Dominic, old. Dominic didn't go to school like you and I probably did amongst other Jamaicans. Dominic went to a prep school with many a foreigner. Um, and a spackling of Jamaicans throughout, <laughs> right? <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Yeah, he so Speaking standard English in school, only standard English in school. Who, me? Which school oh. was that? For, I don't know. No, even, no, even yeah. at Cornell, we think of an English teacher. Remember how, um, oh, was, maybe you didn't have the same English teacher. Like, if you spoke anything but the Queen's English in class, she lost it. I mean, like, I, that's also that colonized crap. That colonial. Yeah. Yes. yes. I mean, color is spelled C O L O U R. Junior plus. Okay, I don't even know I'm a Baylight. I don't even know why I'm asking. So is that like an expat type school? Like no, there was, there was two or three <laughs> people there. No, it's, but here's, here's the funny thing. Let me ask you this, doctor. 
when you when you write, how are you, how are you spelling things? I e how do you spell color? Because my wife laughs at me and thinks that people think I probably don't know how to spell because I still use an S instead of a Z and like criticize or color or neighbor. I still spell the way I learned. And yeah, I think she's right. Many people probably yeah. think, huh, look at this jackass, that's not a spell. <laughs> Hold up, but it, it, it auto-corrects no. for you. Where not auto-correct, that's how I spell. What are you writing that has any of this involved? Auto-correct, what auto-correct? Nothing of mine. You write notes and stuff, letters? Who, who are you writing to, darling? Hold on, hold on. He's hand, what is he doing? Handwriting? What is that? That's what, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying, who's handwriting anything? What do you mean? I'm not handwriting. You what just don't say you spell and call it. Yes. Google's going to tell you it's you, and what? You're going to force Google to put the you in there now? Yes. I'm aware that Google. No, but says I'm saying, in America, are you forcing old. it to, to put you in there, is my point. Yes. It's not Google, first of all, but I get your point. But no, there's, there's Google Word or whatever. I'm literally, Google Docs, go ahead. You can, uh, you can write in there and create a I'm not a typing a Word doc. I'm talking like in an email or a text. So when you type in email Microsoft and there's no U in color, you add the U and it has underlined squiggly red and you just run it same way. Which is what I said 60 seconds ago. Yes. You seriously want but to define the situation? You know what? You know what? Lord Jesus. I mean, hey, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, Okay, so I think about it with every word still. I think if, I, if I'm if i writing an article or a book and I have to go through editors, obviously, then they're going to change everything to the American spelling. Mm -hmm. um, but it's something that I I think about with every word that, that has that, like if it's color or all of those words that we use the, the British spelling. I still probably write it and then autocorrect changes it. So if you're writing a or, colleague or a student? Mm-hmm. You're going with the American um, I think version. I, mean, I think I use, if I use the American version, I still think about it and feel like it's, it's not me. But then I also have this internal dialogue where I think, are people going to, Americans who don't understand that I'm not from here, going to think I can't spell? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what my wife says. I don't says. know that it's wrong. But then yeah. here, here's, here's why I am caught betwixt the two options what is betwixt and between <laughs> right is i'm embracing don't mock me I'm, no i love it i'm gonna use it if i get a tattoo it's a betwixt right i um <laughs> i it, it bothers me that i'm so ardent and stuck on the colonial spelling of this that we were taught right i almost feel like yeah. i'm being hypocritical and should embrace the the radical side yeah. This, is a colonial condition. Yes. this is a condition, right? We always yeah. mess up on thinking about it. That's so true, because whether we're the American or the British spelling, it's like, what is there to defend, really? Nothing. Yes, the only yeah. thing we should defend is our Jamaican nation language. Um, <laughs> so, Which, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, for me, it's just lesser two evils. If autocorrect corrects it, I'm good. But if I'm in, but again, and I'm not right, I'm not... I haven't, I don't give handwritten anything. Who's handwriting anything? <laughs> just, I mean, I'm handwriting my notes, I mean, but besides, I mean, it just find it funny that you, you're forcing the issue when like it does it for you. Feather and ink. Bridget, and I, yeah, that's what I. What are you doing? Like, I can see you in your office with you know with the felt pen and going through this. Like it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, writing on parchment. Like I don't know what you're doing, dog. Writing on parchment. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And what is, what does your picture say? Part unicorn, part what? No, that's it. That's oh, it. It's just part unicorn. And the other part is what? Amazing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I'm just going to let that slide. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, I teach, I teach the children.
children in 15 minutes, so I have right. to. Oh, thank well, you very yeah. much. Thank Go you. And the children. Thank <laughs> you for having me. This is fun. Oh, this is amazing. I shouldn't say children. Right. College people are not children. <laughs> eh, tomato, tomato. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, enjoy the thank rest of your you. day. Stay warm in St. Louis. Continue to educate everybody. For those of you who are listening, please go support the book. Um, again, available on all the on all the mediums. We'll have links to it, et cetera, so you can go check it out. Thank you again, Doctor. Everyone, remember, Thank justice you. over order, be better. Have a good one, everybody. Thank you for having me.